JFK in the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 144. I know we are out of sequence a bit based on what I declared in episode 140 in Bay of Pigs Part 1. Well, I sure hope you enjoyed the live episodes we just presented. There were three of them as we ended up with over two hours of programming on the JFK Records Act. I know it was a lot on the Records Act, but it was worth it. And for those of you that were able to listen in to all three, it was both insightful and fretful. Fretful that the statute could be so ignored by the government and for such a long time. Shame on all of us a bit, too, because the actual proper operation of that statute has not been complied with or enforced for over 25 years. It's a shame because in this past 25 years, as we would expect actuarially, the last critical set of witnesses and actors in this play have passed away. Whatever we might have gleaned from a proper and timely release of those records in the related discussion with those actors and participants, is now left to just historical conjecture, or the possibility of filling in the assassination story mosaic enough that it speaks for itself. Let's hope that opportunity still exists. Listening to Andrew and Mark explain what has really happened and how the time has gone by without compliance and enforcement put a pit in my stomach, and my heart sank a little bit too. Let's all work together to let our legislators know and the committees know, those committees, including the Senate Intelligence Committee, that were mentioned on the podcast. Let's let them know that we are not letting this one go. Proper disclosure is the only option. We don't do many live episodes, but it was a great opportunity and very timely to be able to talk to Andrew Eiler and Mark Adamczyk at the same time. And those two gentlemen are two of the foremost experts on the JFK Records Act. So thank you again to the both of them. If you liked the format of the live podcast, then drop me a note at podcastjfk at gmail.com or make a comment on the episode blog. You can find it at www.podcastjfk.com. And once you're there, Leave your comment on the blog for episode 143, if you can. That was the last of the three live episodes on the act that we published. Today's episode, episode 144, is the Bay of Pigs, part two. 
And among other things, what we do today is to delve deeper into the events that unfolded in 1960 prior to the invasion as part of the lead-up and give context to a little-known fact that the Castro assassination plot that was eventually turfed to the mafia was actually an integral part of the Bay of Pigs planning and strategy. And now you'll come away with a better understanding of how this all came together in 1960. I know we've been on Cuba for a long time, and even after today's episode, we've got just a couple of more to finish out the Bay of Pigs, including the incredible story about Johnny Roselli and the assassination plot. And given that we've done so much on this topic, and the fact that I really do want to get back to a more mainstream discussion about the assassination, we are going to skip the Cuban Missile Crisis. So to say it another way, a couple of more episodes here to finish up the Bay of Pigs and the Mafia plot to kill Castro, and it won't be long before we're back in New Orleans with Mr. Jim Garrison, among other topics that are slated for episodes coming soon and are next on the list. So without further ado, let's listen to episode 144 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. After the devastating cascade of events that occurred over the 1959 time frame, the U.S. authorities made the decision to formally seek regime change in Cuba. And that decision came at an historic meeting of the National Security Council held on March 17, 1960. It was at this meeting that the CIA and the military establishment got the formal green light on the first formal plan a plan that would undergo evolution and change almost right up to the moment that the men hit the beaches at the Bay of Pigs. The Bay of Pigs invasion was a transformation. The original and somewhat limited endeavor was named Operation Zapata. It had an official CIA codename of J-Mate, and the Pentagon even gave it what turned out to be its own rather appropriate moniker, calling it Operation Bumpy Road. Operation Zapata grew from its original endeavor as a $4 million covert infiltration project, a project that was originally limited in scope and designed to train a cadre of skilled insurgency leaders and then drop them into the Escombre Mountains. Well, it grew from there into a $46 million overt amphibious assault that was to go ashore along the Bay of Pigs on the south side of Cuba. How it grew from the original plan to what it became in the end is based on a number of factors. We'll explore those factors in a minute, but first, let's say something about the structure of the National Security Council, the group charged with making that decision. Many people think it was simply President Eisenhower making that decision to move forward on March 17, 1960, 
Certainly Eisenhower is the ultimate authority as chairman of the National Security Council, but there is much more to the decision-making process. I think it's worth taking a minute to review with our listeners what the structure of the National Security Council looks like, because the National Security Council, while an apparatus most often identified with presidential decisions, is in fact something born out of statute with a rather formal statutory structure to it. The objective is, of course, to help the president come to the right decisions on complicated national security matters and give him access to the ultimate in expert advice over a large cross-section of expertise. In theory, that's how it's supposed to work. (laughs) In reality, the dynamics of such big groups sometimes clog like an old engine run afoul. (laughs) But of course, I digress on that one. Briefly, let's talk about the structure of the National Security Council. The structure of the National Security Council has evolved over the years. It's chaired by the president, and it has a series of members. The core members are the ones required under the actual statute which created the National Security Council in 1947. Those statutory members include the vice president, the secretary of state, the secretary of the treasury, the Secretary of Defense, and currently, actually, the Secretary of Energy, which, by the way, this last position was not a position that existed in 1960. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff serves as the military advisor to the committee, and currently, the director of national intelligence serves as the intelligence advisor. Over the years, the president has had discretion as to others which might attend National Security Council meetings, and they include other regular attendees as set forth in a national security memorandum that is updated from time to time. Other regular attendees include the Attorney General, the Director of the Central Intelligence Agency, the Secretary for Homeland Security, the Ambassador to the United Nations, the White House Chief of Staff, and the White House Counsel, and the National Security Advisor. Situationally, the president, again, may invite a wide range of individuals to give input and examples, including the heads of other executive departments and agencies, as well as other senior officials, wherever it might be appropriate. Notice that the CIA is not a standing member by statute of the National Security Council. While that is true statutorily, the involvement of the CIA, particularly in this case, was paramount. They were given the lead by Eisenhower, as his overriding concern was to keep the operation secret enough to retain the idea of plausible deniability, something we have talked about ad nauseum in this podcast. But honestly, it is the reason for the failure of the mission. So it deserves more than center stage here in what I would affectionately term kabuki theater, a term I would use here more often if it weren't so tragic and did not involve the loss of men's lives. So out of respect, I won't call it kabuki theater again. But really, there was a bit of that in this equation. We have to keep in mind that there were men here who fearlessly went into battle and died in vain due to the lack of political courage and common sense that was displayed at this moment by the senior officials in the United States government. And I'm talking about men at the time in the government who were truly in charge and capable of taking action. And there were many of them. But first and foremost, that includes President Kennedy. 
like it or not, no matter how you feel about him, he was in ultimate control, and it was he who was ultimately responsible for the failure. It was one of the most amazing ironies of his life for a man who clearly lived very fearlessly in so many ways. Let's get back to why the mission morphed to something much bigger than its original intentions. First, it became clear through the summer of 1960 that Castro was more firmly settled as chief of state than had originally been hoped. And in the summer and fall of 1960, while some counter-revolutionary guerrilla resistance continued in the Escambre Mountains and in some of the Cuban provinces too, their numbers were just too small compared to Castro's growing militia forces. It soon became evident through the fall and early winter of 1960 that it was going to be difficult, if not impossible, to sustain and grow these counter-revolutionary guerrilla forces, at least quickly enough and to an acceptable scale. Those conclusions were reinforced by the basic difficulties in supplying the guerrillas. Airdrops of food, supplies, and munitions regularly being conducted by the CIA over that summer had rarely been successful in delivering their payloads to the guerrillas. The CIA and military advisors were not surprised by this as they had themselves predicted low success with this form of logistics supply, something they had already experienced in the Guatemala operation in the early 50s. And they were right. Eventually, the initial airdrops were moved from nighttime events to daylight ones that were subsequently directed to terrain held strictly by the counter-revolutionary guerrillas. This helped, but it didn't completely solve the supply chain problem. There were other supply chain failures as well. Supplies were coming in from points around the coast by boat, but again, the difficulty of moving food, ammunition, and material within Cuba itself without getting caught by Castro's ever-increasing Soviet-style security net made it clear to the United States authorities and planners those within the military and the CIA, that it was going to be impossible to foster a large enough internal guerrilla resistance buildup to get the job done in that way, one that could achieve adequate enough size to eliminate Castro's regime totally from within. No way, at least, without something more in the mix. By late 1960, the Eisenhower administration had concluded that very fact, and they did it more definitively, and they made a decision to continue to support the counter-revolutionary guerrillas, but at the same time to pivot to a more aggressive strategy, a strategy that included limited invasion by exile forces. Beginning in November 1960 and up until April 1961, right up to the time of the Bay of Pigs invasion, there was a general thinking within the military establishment and the CIA that a military intervention by exile forces was a generally approved part of the concept. But it was more vague as it relates to American involvement. As a result, though, the size of the exile brigade was increased bit by bit over that time frame, until the final 1,500-man total was reached. The logistics were carefully weighed by officers experienced in guerrilla and special force actions, with the result being that 
a minimum basic force of 750 men was decided on in December 1960 to be the proper size for the requirements. The increase beyond that number was undertaken to provide extra strength on the simple theory that as long as flexibility was retained, more men and guns would inevitably be useful. The decisions involving size and use of the brigade were, in general, based on its employment as a single force, even though an element of the contingency plan contemplated a dispersal of the men into the Escambre Mountains. All planning scenarios made it clear that scrambling the fighting unit into smaller groups made the men likely vulnerable to eventual capture or elimination by Castro's forces. On November 4th, four days before the presidential election, the CIA sent a long cable to Guatemala informing its men there of this decision. The CIA ordered a reduction of the guerrilla force to a strength of 60 and then to use conventional arms and training for everyone else. The cables spelled out in excruciating detail how the change in training was to take place, and it was to be replaced with World War II infantry assault landing tactics, and that would become the new Bible at the training camp. From that day on, any talk in the training camp of guerrilla warfare was regarded by the CIA as a sign of weakness. A few weeks later, on November 18th, 1960, the State Department made public details of military aid to Cuba from the Soviet bloc. At that time, the department said Castro's army was judged to be 10 times the size that Batista's had been. And from January 1959 to mid-November 1960, some 28,000 tons of military supplies had been shipped into Cuba. I think it's safe to say that all of us just sort of scratch our heads when we think of less than 2,000 men invading an island where the militia that was meant to meet them was upwards of 60,000 men, especially of what the State Department already knew and stated as of November 18th. Who in their right mind believes that well-trained men, no matter how well-trained they were in a force of only 2,000, could take on a militia with 60,000. As we go back in this time machine, we have to recall and be mindful of one thing, that in Cuba's most recent history, a small band of highly dedicated men under Castro were able to do almost exactly that inside of Cuba just a few years before. And the men that were going back now, these Cuban exiles were better trained than any of those men that had participated in Castro's revolution. But there was no doubt that it would require the same essential ingredient that was required a few years earlier. That is, it would require a general uprising of the Cuban populace at the time of the invasion. It would have to be like a wildfire. These exiles landing on the beaches and uniting with those counter-revolutionaries in a way that ignites an explosion inside of Cuba, just like Castro did but now, like the rocking of the sea, gently back and forth, now going in the other direction. That uprising was never to be. It was totally miscalculated by the CIA under the circumstances and the movement of the plan from Trinidad, which was a city that had a certain level of counter-revolutionary culture and lots of people, 
to the deserted area around Playa Garan and the Bay of Pigs was a disaster. A disaster when it came to this critical part of the plan. What we haven't said before was that one of the key reasons for doing that was that there was an airfield close to the Bay of Pigs. In fact, there were two. And it was judged to be absolutely essential to have an airfield secure once the landing occurred. That was not possible if the landing happened to Trinidad. So despite some of the other things that we've discussed already, that was a key element as well. The Cuban exiles who engaged in this mission were part of Brigade 2506. Let me describe how Brigade 2506 got its name. There is a bit of deception in everything that the CIA does, and it even starts with the name of this brigade. When the CIA began the recruiting process for the mission, they gave each recruit a number in chronological order as each of the men joined up. And in order to create the deception that there were more men at the beginning in the brigade, the number assigned to the first man was 2501. A nice propaganda head start totaling 2,500 men. And the brigade itself would subsequently be named for the first casualty that the brigade experienced. It occurred on September 7, 1960, during the brigade's training in Guatemala one afternoon while a group of the recruits were out on a reconnaissance mission. Carlos Carlisle, Rafael Santana, an idealistic young student who some say was the most popular young man in the camp, slipped off the side of a sheer hill in extremely challenging terrain, and he tumbled to his death. The men with him searched frantically for hours to no avail, and then the rains came along with nighttime. There was nothing left but to say a prayer, and they did. His body was recovered the next day by nearby local Indians. His previously assigned platoon number was 2506. And in honor of Carlos Carlisle Rafael Santana, the brigade was now named Brigade 2506. Of course, these men were in Guatemala at the time, training already in September for the mission, which at that point was primarily seen as a guerrilla mission. November had not come yet, and the pivot had not yet been made to an invasion-style approach. But let us back up and tell the story of the formation of things which got started immediately after the March National Security Council meeting. Well, actually, the planning got started well before that, even. The CIA wasted no time, and, in truth, their process to assemble a Cuba team began in January 1960 well before the March National Security Council meeting. A key meeting to bring the team together that would manage the project took place on January 18th in the office of J.C. King. King was chief of the Western Hemisphere Division of the CIA. About a dozen men assembled in King's office in Washington, D.C., and the playbook to start with was clearly the Guatemala operation, and many of these men had been involved in it. It was a mission that was aptly dubbed with its codename of Operation Success. The CIA was confident that the men involved in Guatemala who had pulled that success off should be involved in this new endeavor in Cuba. Among the players at this meeting were Jacob Esterline, who was the CIA station chief in Caracas, Venezuela. 
Masterline would become the project manager for the Bay of Pigs project and later would work closely with Jack Hawkins to plan and set up and operate the exile training camps and execute the details of the mission. He operated under various alias names, with the most popular being Jake Engler, and that is the one that we'll use if we use an alias throughout the rest of these episodes. There were two of the agency's senior field operators there, too, names that JFK assassination buffs will know very well, E. Howard Hunt and Tracy Barnes. Barnes was the closest thing to a number two to Richard Bissell. Bissell, at the time, was the deputy director of plans, the person in charge of all covert operations. And Bissell himself, as we have previously noted in prior episodes, would go on to be the chief architect of the CIA's Bay of Pigs invasion strategy and planning. Barnes was no fool. He was Ivy League educated, too. He went to Harvard Law School and he practiced law on Wall Street before he came to the CIA. He was happy to be the number two behind Bissell. And he was an amiable fellow and affable and he was from money and he married into high society family as well. Then there was David Atlee Phillips, who was among the dozen as well and another name quite familiar to JFK assassination buffs. And the agency signed him up as the propaganda man for the Cuba mission. The CIA at that time was filled with Ivy Leaguers and men with varied and colorful backgrounds. Phillips had once been an actor, and he was also a playwright, and for a time, he had been in Chile running a newspaper where it is thought that at that moment, that's when he got more deeply involved as a CIA operative. Phillips had been involved in the Guatemala operation and created a rebel radio station during that mission a radio station in Honduras, but supposedly broadcasting from somewhere in the jungle in Guatemala. He knew Cuba well, too. He had spent four years there running the PR for U.S. companies. There were other personal stories like that amongst the participants that day. Jake Engler was an aspiring singer at one point. This was a complicated and multi-pronged project. There was a training and recruitment portion that related to the exiles. There was a political component whereby a government in exile was to be formed. And there was, of course, a continuing propaganda element that overlaid the whole thing. And perhaps more importantly, was supposed to be the key ingredient related to ensuring that the hearts and the minds of the Cubans were won by the exile counter-revolutionaries. And that had happened before they stepped foot on any beach in Cuba. David Atlee Phillips' propaganda campaign would be key, and this success would be critical to achieving just that. Phillips got started right away, and he scrambled over to Dick Bissell's office. Bissell asked him how long it would take for such a propaganda effort to work. Phillips would tell him that it was probably close to six months. Bissell wanted to know if he could start within the next 30 days. Phillips would then ramble off a series of requirements that would be necessary. He told Bissell he would need a plane to do leaflet drops before the invasion and on D-Day. And just as he had done in Guatemala, he wanted to set up a radio station. But this time it would need to be stronger than what was needed in Guatemala because of the size of Cuba So he requested a 50-kilowatt medium-wave transmitter, the size of which 
would fill several boxcars. Initially, Phillips proposed actually broadcasting from somewhere in the Florida Keys. And, of course, that was just 90 miles offshore and centrally located for the wave to be received in all of Cuba. Bissell quickly reminded him that the State Department would never agree to broadcasting from American soil. The transmitter that Phillips needed was, without saying, gigantic, and there weren't too many available immediately. Bissell's assistant, Jim Flannery, got to work on it right away and found that the U.S. Army had one located on a train in Germany, and it was about to be turned over to the Voice of America. After a few phone calls, Phillips was able to commandeer the transmitter and get it flown back overseas to be used in the operation. They finally settled on a location to place the transmitter. It would be constructed on Swan Island, which is an island about halfway between the tip of Honduras and the south side of Cuba. Swan Island, at the time, had a population of 28, and there wasn't much more there than a little bit of vegetation. Some would say it had no more than three palm trees on it, but some would also say it was superbly private. The actual radio station broadcasts would occur in Miami and then be transmitted through Swan Island, a process that would make them available across Cuba. It would, of course, be affectionately known as Radio Swan. It was no small task to get the transmitter set up, and in the middle of this, like most things that happened in the Bay of Pigs, complications occurred. It turned out that since 1863, both the United States and the country of Honduras had claimed sovereignty over Swan Island. And to add a little color to this story, on one Sunday afternoon, as the Navy ship was approaching, the ship that contained the transmitter, 13 Honduras students made their way to the island. They planted the flag, the Honduras flag, and sang the Honduran national anthem. <laughs> the CIA intercepted these youngsters and invited them for some beer, and in the end, they departed the island without incident. Navy men were then free to offload the transmitter, traversing the special dock that had been built there by Navy Seabees, constructed especially for the unloading. And then, as promised by Phillips, Radio Swan was up and running within 30 days. By August 18th, the cabinet had approved a $13 million budget, up from the original $4 million. But it was still a pretty hands-off budget, although it did approve the use of the Department of Defense personnel and equipment, but still barring any United States military personnel from participating in any combat. It was becoming increasingly likely that the Cuban exile combat force would not be ready by the time of the election. Vice President Nixon, who was going to become the Republican candidate for president, was pressing hard to be ready early as he wanted the Republicans to get credit and have that credit available as part of the election. Kennedy was an unknown factor, and he might be influenced by Eisenhower's enthusiasm or lack thereof surrounding the Cuba project. And so far, Ike was uninvolved, so it was hard to ascribe enthusiasm to it. But even though he might not have been involved, he himself, Eisenhower that is, was getting impatient. Richard Bissell also had his own frustrations as he was certain that the project was not necessarily getting the best talent within the CIA. Howard Hunt and Jerry Drawler were not getting along in Miami, and that was creating its own set of dynamics within the agency and also 
with the Cubans. The Cubans themselves had a mix of rival factions, and combining this with the split within the agency between Hunt and Drawler made the dynamics locally on the ground in South Florida quite tricky. Hunt felt that he had outranked Drawler and had a greater status, and he hated the machismo approach that Drawler displayed. Hunt was, frankly, more refined. He had gone to Brown University, and he could speak Spanish, and Drawler couldn't. It was pretty clear that Drawler didn't know the first word of Spanish, and he was an aggressor in the relationship between the two. (laughs) He would address Hunt as the boy chick. Hunt would eventually bring Bernard Barker into the fold. He was a man who was born in Havana of American parents, and he served in the U.S. Air Force. And he eventually became a CIA informant in Cuba. He was highly loyal to Howard Hunt. He and Hunt would team up and work closely with all the exile politicians trying to mediate squabbles and, in some cases, even starting squabbles where they were valuable to do. Clearly, the two played political favorites in the Miami environment, and it was easy to do because they had a lot of CIA money to spread around. It was thought that Hunt, at times, carried as much as $100,000 plus in a briefcase to have on demand when the situation required it. Hunt would be given the job of recruiting and putting together the next Cuban provisional government. He and Frank Bender, that is Jerry Drawler, who I'll introduce next, would be the two main men on the scene in Miami. Oh yes, I got a little ahead of myself, and I do have to introduce him. Another important member of the team that day was Jerry Drawler, a.k.a. Frank Bender. Bender had been the Swiss desk officer, and he was known for smoking large, very pungent cigars. He was a German that didn't speak a lick of Spanish, but he was going to Miami to recruit Cubans for a job that had to be done. Oh, and of course, I mentioned Bernard Barker earlier. Many of you will recognize Bernard Barker's name as one of the Watergate plumbers, along with Howard Hunt. While many in the CIA thought that assigning Howard Hunt and Frank Bender, Jerry Drawler, to the project was like getting a couple of C students to go to work for you, they were also quite surprised that Richard Helms on the other hand, stayed away from the project. It was well known that he and Bissell had a rather cool relationship, a rivalry. And during 1960, while he was involved initially, it didn't take much time for him to gravitate away from the project. At some point, it became an implied division of labor. And it became fortuitous for Helms as, in the end, Bissell took the fall for the failure And that paved the way for Helms to move higher up in the CIA, eventually leading to his own directorship of the agency. There is much behind the reasons for Helms staying away from this project, and it's beyond the scope of this episode. But in the end, he took a political gamble, and he was not the one that crapped out. Oh, 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 to the contrary. After the March approval by the National Security Council, the CIA got moving quickly on setting up the training facilities that would be required for the exiles. And contrary to popular belief, the training was not all done in one place. There was specialized training done here in the States, and it's supplemented 
the basic guerrilla warfare and infantry training that took place mainly in Guatemala after the training facilities were moved away from USEPA on the west coast of Florida. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Let's get into the details of all of this for a second. As you might expect, after the coup in Guatemala, the CIA found it to be an easy environment to work with. And they sent the main training base up there. The president of Guatemala at the time was Miguel Yedigoras. He was a strong anti-communist. And of course, like most heads of state in that neck of the woods, they were eager to maintain their support from the U.S. And at that time, Guatemala was receiving $50 million plus a year from the United States. Robert K. Davis, who was the CIA station chief in Guatemala, brokered the deal. He would meet with an old friend, Roberto Alejos. Alejos was a rich man and a friend of Davis, and he owned the coffee plantation, Helvicia. It was massive, and it covered some 5,000 acres in the Sierra Madre Mountains at altitudes from between 4,000 and 8,000 feet, and it was crisscrossed with some 60 miles of private roads. It was remote enough for sure, as the nearest village, San Felipe, was some 15 miles away. They also weren't far away from the plantation's coffee packing factory. And there was a still active volcano, Santiaguita, which was in the vicinity. Alejos was close to Yirigoras, and soon the deal would be done. The training camp would be placed right there at Helvicia. And as the scope of the Cuba project expanded, so did the request to expand the training facilities at Helvicia. In fact, Davis was a little flabbergasted when, at the end of May, he got a message instructing him to build an airport now on the property. That wasn't part of the original deal. Luckily, the Guatemalans agreed. They were used to this kind of thing from the U.S. government. And a group of Air Force officers arrived from Washington. They found a spot below Helvicia in a town called Retahulio. And while the initial estimates were about 20% of what the final cost was. At the end of the day, they built the runway and the airport facilities for $1.8 million. As the project expanded, so did the training facility, but the Guatemalans stayed true and kept supporting the expanded demands. In the end, they also got a nice quid pro quo with the CIA agreeing to train an equal number of Guatemalan soldiers at the facility. The airstrip would also serve as a central accumulation point for supplies, materials, and munitions that were used on the mission. By July, they were not only engaging in guerrilla warfare training, but they were also doing radio operator training and cryptography training as well at the site in Guatemala. Other training sites with very specific objectives would pop up across multiple geographies. Paratrooper training was at a base nicknamed Guerra Patanango, near another city in Guatemala. Training for boat handling and amphibious landings took place at Vicas Island in Puerto Rico. Tank training for the Brigade 2506 M41 Walker Bulldog tanks took place at Fort Knox, Kentucky, and at Fort Benning in Georgia. Underwater demolition and infiltration training took place at Bell Chase, near New Orleans. The Alabama National Guard contributed heavily to the training of Cuban pilots who were going to fly the B-26 bombers. 
that proved to be an important part of the mission, and we'll get to that part later. While the Guatemala location required work to ready it, including the construction of the airport, the rest of the sites were closer to plug and play. But there was also a concomitant process to identify exiles, mostly in Miami, who could join the fighting force. They had to be identified, vetted, and cleared before they could be turned over and shipped off to Guatemala. And remember, it took 90 days to build that airport in Guatemala. And by early summer, many in the administration were getting antsy, including Richard Nixon, because the progress here was geared toward one single objective. When would a sufficient guerrilla force be ready to be dropped into Cuba? Nixon wanted to capitalize politically before the elections came, as I've mentioned before, He was a hawk on the matter and wanted the Republicans to be assured of getting credit for the move on Cuba. And that meant making it happen before the elections. But even by then, and even in the limited scale of the proposed guerrilla conflict, which was the mission at the moment, they were not ready. And it was becoming increasingly clear that they would not be ready by the time of the U.S. elections. Even by this time, CIA and military planners were perceiving that a riskier and more riskier circumstance was developing for a plan with such limited scale to succeed. And it was also becoming more of a question of how the Cuban people would react to a counter-revolutionary surge against Castro. Would they embrace it or not? What was the probability that they would pivot away from Castro when it was clear that Castro's grip on the country was indeed accelerating. Was that because of the Soviet-style police measures he was using? Or was it because the Cuban people were truly turning toward communism as they followed Castro into this new world? Richard Bissell was contemplating this very thing, and he knew that the plan needed a trump card. (laughs) No pun intended in our current environment. Bissell needed assurances that the Cuban people would embrace a counter-revolution because without the support of the people, the exiles' invasion, no matter how well the landing went, no matter how much initial success they had, a small band of even highly trained guerrillas would most assuredly be a failure without a popular uprising to go with it. Bissell's ace in the hole turned out to be a plan to assassinate or eliminate Fidel Castro, and possibly the entire top tier of the Castro regime, and do it before the guerrilla insurgency launched, in an ideal scenario, and take out all three of the main actors out of the equation, Fidel, his brother Raul, and Che Guevara. Richard Bissell was certain that a successful assassination attempt on even just Fidel Castro would cut the heart out of the Cuban Revolution and propel the people to embrace the Cuban exile forces. Assassination of Fidel would leave the revolution rudderless and ensure a popular uprising. And that then would ensure a successful exile landing that would then lead to a scenario in which the limited exile troops and the provisional government could retake hold of the country just as Fidel had done just a couple of years earlier. Only now, the communists would be out. But how to do this, and even more importantly, 
How could it be kept entirely clandestine, this assassination plot against Castro? Bissell wasn't even going to opine on the morality of it. The idea of the United States government participating in the assassination of a leader of another nation. This idea had all sorts of implications to it, regardless of whether it was a banana republic or not. And with the Soviets involved already, things were getting very complicated in a hurry. But still, his mind went back to the early meetings in March when the National Security Council made mention of taking Castro out. Not necessarily a direct assassination plot, but no one would be unhappy if he became a goner during the execution of the rest of the plan. And Bissell was having to face the reality of what was truly shaping up to be inside of Cuba. So, the elimination of Castro now seemed to be essential to making the plan work. It plays in to what happened next. On July 20th, the Washington, D.C. CIA duty officer got a call while he was home that night. He was called into the offices immediately as a cable had just arrived from the CIA station in Havana. The cable reported that there was a volunteer CIA agent, a Cuban, that would probably be in contact with Raul Castro soon. The rest of the cable contained a relatively benign request. What sort of intelligence information should they try to extract from Raul? The cable that was sent back to the Havana CIA station the next night, the night of July 21st, would be the first tip of the hand regarding the CIA's hardening plans to assassinate Castro. And it had a bonus play too, so to speak. It would read, and I quote, possible removal of top three leaders is receiving serious consideration at HQS. It would go on to pose the question, asking whether the Cuban agent was sufficiently motivated to risk, and I quote, arranging an accident related to Raul. The cable went on to say that the station could, and I quote, at discretion, contact subject to determine willingness to cooperate and his suggestion on details. It was said that the CIA case officer in Havana swallowed hard when he read the cable. There was no doubt that these instructions were a significant deviation from the kind of instructions that normally would have come across to answer the original request. The CIA case officer followed orders, and he made contact with the Cuban, and he went ahead and had the conversation asking, and I quote, about an accident to neutralize this leader's influence. After some dialogue on the matter, the Cuban agreed to take on the assignment only after the CIA case officer assured him that in the event of his death, the sons of this Cuban would get a college education. A very short time later, the CIA case officer returned to the CIA offices only to find an additional cable pertaining to the same matter and it came from Washington. It seems that now there was a change of heart. It essentially said, do not pursue, would like to drop the matter. This latest cable was signed Tracy Barnes. Years later, during the church committee investigations, no one seemed to be able to answer why this matter was terminated at this moment. There was much conjecture, and it rested mostly from testimony that came from Richard Bissell, 
who looked in the direction of Alan Dulles, saying that most likely Dulles ordered the cancellation, potentially assuming that the mission was just too risky in light of the probabilities related to its success. At the end of the day, the Cuban agent in question was not successful in finding a way to arrange an accident. So in one sense, thankfully, the reversal was carried out without incident. In this same time frame, there were other harebrained schemes that began to emerge as ways to eliminate Castro. The CIA has a division known as the Technical Services Division, or TSD. If you've ever watched a James Bond film, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, the lab that the character Q works in, the Research and Development Division of the British Secret Service. Well, the CIA has one too, and it's real, and it's the TSD. One of the ideas that the TSD considered was spraying his, that is Castro's, broadcasting studio with a chemical that would then produce erratic behavior. The idea was to make him less credible when he was speaking in public. The chemical was much like LSD, but the plan was ultimately abandoned because the chemical itself proved to be unreliable. They considered something similar related to impregnating a box of cigars with a chemical that produced temporary disorientation, and they hoped that Castro could be tricked into smoking one right before delivering a speech. Yes, these were pretty harebrained ideas, but the last couple of ones I'm going to mention in this category are even worse. They happened upon the idea that they would dust his shoes with thallium salts, which is a strong depilatory. You know, the thing that makes your hair fall out. Something that women sometimes use to remove unwanted hair on their bodies. They were hoping that Fidel's beard would fall out at that time, and of course, then his image as a barbudo, a machismo in the macho culture of the Latins, would likely be damaged. Of course, they were relying on someone to administer the salts, and they had a plan. There was an upcoming trip that Castro had planned, and they surmised that Castro would leave his shoes outside his hotel room to be shined. This one might have worked in some silly sense of the word, but Castro canceled his trip, and it never happened. There was an even crazier scheme to contaminate a box of his favorite cigars with botulism toxin. <laughs> the plan was to put such a potent dose of it on his cigars that he would die immediately upon putting the cigar in his mouth. Of course, these were all unsuccessful. Oh, and actually, I forgot. There was one more. As I've said in prior episodes, Castro liked to dive, and there was a plan to plant a seashell, an area that he visited often, one that would explode once he found the shell. That idea was unsuccessful as well. Of course, all of these harebrained ideas were all unsuccessful. But even though we have fast-forwarded to the end of that piece of kabuki theater, we still need to tell the complete story of the mafia's involvement in the plan to assassinate Castro. And some of the kabuki theater that I've just noted was part of that act of the play. So I'll just give you the entree here. What happened next after the Cuban agent incident? What happened next to invite the mafia's involvement? You see, the cable was perhaps more than an indication that high anxiety was beginning to accumulate around the Cuba project. The delay in the development of the Guatemalan training camps and the airfield there, 
which actually was impacted by the rainy season. And then there were complications already beginning to develop in organizing and managing the Cuban leadership in Miami. Competition and suspicion between those groups, along with the dynamic between Howard Hunt and Jerry Drawler. All of this were creating a messy soup for the project. And then in August, Richard Bissell got a call from Colonel Sheffield Edwards, who was the director of the agency's Office of Security. He didn't give much in the way of details, but he asked Bissell to come over to his office. Bissell obliged. Once he got there, Edwards would reveal the reason for the visit. It was to discuss the elimination of Castro and what might be the best way to do it. Edwards would state that he didn't think it was the kind of project that would be done by the brigade. He had another idea. Why not use the mafia? After all, here was a group that Castro had perhaps wreaked the most economic destruction on, taking away the casinos and the prostitution business and seizing their property was more than enough to make them mad. Surely the mafia would be highly motivated to take Castro and this regime out and get a shot at returning some of the wealth, if not the entire business of gambling and vice. And regardless of how all that went, just the element of revenge would be powerful to this group. Edwards would point out that there was very little chance that anything the mafia or the syndicate did could be traced back to the U.S. government. And from his perspective, the mafia was highly efficient when it came to eliminating men that were in their way. It was an outrageous idea, perhaps so outrageous that it just might work. Even so, Bissell was skeptical. He gave it a one in ten chance of working but he didn't have a lot of options, so he approved the approach because he, too, wanted Castro eliminated. Edwards would assign James O'Connell, a former FBI agent and the chief of his operational support division, to begin the task, the initial assignment, of finding somebody that could be the go-between and that had the gravitas to deal with the mafia and someone who could help set this whole thing up. O'Connell would settle on another former FBI man named Robert Mayhew, who was currently heading up Robert Mayhew and Associates. This man had his own private investigative group headquartered in Washington. What happens next is a story from Hollywood. Folks, you can't make this up. Thank you for listening to episode 144 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.